And it's good to uh, see you. It's good to be together. It's good to be able to share these things uh, together. Before we start, Ethan, would you lead us in prayer? Dear Lord, our Father, we come to you humbly this morning, thanking you so much for this opportunity to get together with fellow Christians, to be encouraged, to study your word. Lord, please be with the Christians in other countries or even other states in America that don't have this opportunity to be with such a large crowd of encouraging Christians that are helping them get to the final goal. Be with them and strengthen them on their walk with you. Lord, please be with Barry today as he teaches us what he studied. Help him to remember what he's learned and help help him to convey it to us. Lord, help us to stay focused and to learn and apply what we learned today to our own lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As we look at Proverbs 27, just think about the nature of Proverbs, that these wise sayings are very condensed. You know, there's a lot of, you know, meaning in every proverb. And to really benefit like we should by them, you have to really think about them. You have to kind of mull them over and and meditate on them. You'll often see various uh, applications in various parts of your life. If you think about it, you know, Proverbs is one of those books, if you just kind of skim it, you don't get much out of it. You know, because they're really intended to be thought about. And, and that's one of the benefits of being able to sh- study them together, is that we kind of think about them in group. You know, perhaps uh, different people are able to consider a different application or another angle. And uh, that's something we need to do also with Proverbs, just, uh, you know, on our own time. The Bible talks a lot about the importance of, of meditating on God's Word, really thinking about it, thinking it over. And, uh, you know, that we need that in this book. We need to take these Proverbs and, and really chew on them. So uh, that's, that's uh, one of the things we'll try to do as we look through these things uh, today. And, yes, Chris. You think about the fact that they're written by, like, the wisest man that ever lived. And is it any wonder that we can't just read over it cursory, you know, reading and get everything out of it? Because we're, we're trying to gain something that was written by a higher level than Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of depth to it. And something that's deep, you've got to sort of mine. You know, you've got to go deep to to really understand it. And and really, as you keep thinking, you keep seeing more deeply into it. You get more insight into it. And maybe not be quite so discouraged if you don't see it right away because of that fact. Well, I think it makes it exciting. You know, you look forward to continuing to see more and understand more, and maybe even as our experiences in life differ, we can see applications we wouldn't have thought about before because we're going through other situations, and uh, the proverb comes to life in, in other applications. So, you know, it's very, to me, it's exciting to think about the fact that I haven't learned it all yet, that there's even more to consider and, and more to grow in. So that's uh, exciting, and uh, I think should be uh, to all of us. Um, so, in chapter 27, would somebody read the first two verses? 
Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Let another praise you, and not your own, a stranger, and not your own. Okay. Now, he's talking about boasting here in two different applications. In verse 1, in what sense would, should we not boast? About tomorrow. What do you mean? What does it mean to boast about tomorrow? Something you don't have yet. Yeah, so what would it mean to boast about it? Saying that you're going to make some great accomplishment. Yes, boasting about what we're going to do. You know, we shouldn't have this attitude that shows that we think we can control everything in our lives and we can just determine how everything is going to happen in the future. After all, we don't even know if there will be a future, let alone what's going to happen in that. When is it that we are most likely to boast about what we're going to do in the future? When we're excited about the future. When we're excited about it. I'm thinking about another time when we tend to boast about the future. When we tend to sort of make statements about the future that indicate a, a controlling attitude about it. How is it when we're insecure? Okay. I'm thinking about this. What about when we want to put something off today that we really ought to do and say, so, well, I'll do it tomorrow. Do you ever do that? Maybe something really you should be doing right now, something that's an urgent priority, but we're just confident, well, tomorrow we'll take care of it. Well, you know, maybe we will. It's not bad to purpose to do good things tomorrow, but if it's something that really should be done today, tomorrow might not happen, or we might not be able to do it tomorrow. So we really need to have humility about the things that we're going to do in our life. Thoughts and comments about that angle of boasting? I think of the passage in James 4 where um, James actually says, it's best to say if the Lord wills. I mean, it's not something we think about a lot as a command, it's just something we should do, but it is always better to give God the glory. And, um, I think it helps our mindset in giving him control. It does. When you say, well, I'm going to do this if the Lord wills, you are actually in what you say recognizing that the Lord is in control, that you can't just determine by your own you know, force of uh, will what will happen. It's certainly true that we'll not do anything unless the Lord wills it and is willing to allow it to happen. Paul would often talk about plans to visit. And he'd say, if the Lord wills, I'll come to you. There were some times he made plans that didn't happen because the Lord was not willing for that to happen. Other thoughts about that? Well, you've got boasting in verse 2 in a little different sense. What's the boasting in verse 2 about? If you're bragging on yourself, it's better if someone else gives you a compliment. Yes. What kinds of things do you usually brag on with yourself? Things that are very exaggerated. Yes. <laughs> if verse 1 is bragging about what you're going to do, verse 2 is bragging about you've done. what you've already done. And we're not the ones who ought to do that. You know, what do you think about a person who's always uh, you know, involved in self-advertising? Yeah, politician. 
Doesn't it almost tend to cheapen them? You know, if they're always talking about themselves and the great things they've done, don't you usually tend to think they probably haven't? You know, it really, it really tends to, uh, you know, you, you tend not to be as impressed with that. And it's not the right thing. We should not be the people praising ourselves. What are some common ways in which we violate this? You think of any times that you see this violated? Are there any times that we just try to throw into the conversation something we've looked good in and our motivation really is to let everybody know how good we did? You know, we may not say it like we're bragging on ourselves. We just kind of try to throw it out there. You know, but really deep down, we're trying to draw attention to ourselves and get glory. Have you ever done that? It's an easy thing to do. What else? What other applications do you see of that? Who tends to brag on themselves the most? Someone that really hasn't done anything great. We tend to brag more when we haven't done things, right? Because we sort of feel insecure. We don't feel that good about ourselves, so we want to talk about what we've done to try to build ourselves up make ourselves feel better. Yeah, I think so. Are <clears> there <throat> thoughts in common camera? I think it's also, not only in the things that we say, can we be bragging on ourselves, but um, in the parable that Jesus gives about um, sitting in the right spot, that just the way we act, we can choose to pick the big seat in the important place, and then that be boasting on ourselves, but we should let others put us in that big place and take the small place instead. Yes. Don't, you know, think about the kind of guy who's always kind of, pick me, pick me, pick me. <laughs> you know, always kind of trying to, to get the attention, to get the limelight. Uh, you know, who always wants to be seen. Do you, do, you ever, uh, do you ever notice people doing the pick me, pick me when it comes to, you know, needing to clean the bathroom or, you know, something <laughs> like that? What are people more commonly competing for? Yeah, things that seem to be a little more glorious, you know. You know, we say, well, I just want to serve. Why do we only want to serve in the things that give us attention and glory? If we really want to serve, why don't we want to serve in the lowly things that nobody wants to do? Logan? Another application of this is that we ought to be the ones building others up. We should be the ones giving that compliment to other people instead of trying to build ourselves up. Yes, in fact, we should be thinking more about the Lord than we think about ourselves. And we really ought to be giving honor to others and not to ourselves. It all, all kind of comes back to how we're thinking. Are we thinking mostly about us, or are we really focused on the Lord and on others? Other thoughts and comments? All right, three and four. 27, 3 and 4. A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than a <coughs> Wrath is cruel and anger is a torrent. 
But who is able to stand for jealousy? Okay. Uh, so, you know, if you had to lug around some boulder or some bag of sand, that could be really exhausting. But it's not as exhausting as having to put up with a fool. You know, that's what will really wear you out. You know, he's just this heavy burden uh, that wears you, your patience thin. You know, uh, Proverbs certainly has a lot of things to say about a fool. And uh, you think about, in certain situations, how difficult it is to put up with a fool. You've got a fool in, the, in your family, you know, a fool in some fa family gathering, a fool in a church. You know, sometimes it just, man, you'd rather lug around the boulder. <laughs> It'd be easier. Um, and then look at verse 4. He, you know, you can say a lot of things about the damage that wrath and anger can do. They're like a flood. They're like a raging torrent that will destroy a lot of things. But really, they are less damaging than what? Jealousy. Jealousy. Because jealousy will just kind of sit there and simmer until it just destroys the person that it's jealous of. Jealousy is a really very damaging, very destructive attitude. What kind of things are we usually jealous of? Possessions. Are right, jealous of what people have got? Jealous of where they are in life. Where they are in life. What they know. What they know. Talents they have. Their talents and abilities. Their circumstances. Popularity. Their popularity. So how do we act when we're jealous? We try to be better than the person we're jealous of. We become very competitive. Trying to, trying to show we're better than they are. Trying to score points off of them. Trying to make them look bad or put them down. Uh, that, that's for sure. Are there any other things we try to do when we're jealous? Jealousy seems to produce all the other bad attributes. I mean, you even mentioned, you know, the anger and the wrath, but those are all byproducts of jealousy also. So it, it just multiplies into all of them, it seems. Absolutely. What does a person usually say about the person they're jealous of? Not good things. Yeah. Try to say things that make people think less of that person. You try to discredit them, damage their reputation. And you start, have you ever seen a jealous person operate that way? And it's like, why are you so out to get this person? Why are you always taking everything they say and do and distorting it to be bad? But it's really because they feel this overwhelming sense of, of rivalry and, and this they're hurt that somebody else they feel like is better than they are. I mean, what did God say we ought to do with those who are rejoicing? Rejoice with, Rejoice with them. Be happy for them. When somebody's doing well, if, we're, if we really have a brotherly spirit, we ought to be thrilled. Instead of being hurt, being angry. 
you know, kind of, we see, we see the one we're jealous of getting attention, we kind of go off in the corner and pout. You know, that shows we don't feel toward them as a brother. I think there's a lot more jealousy than what we recognize. We don't talk about that very much. Boy? It's, it's more subtle than wrath and anger, too. I mean, you could, uh, uh, it's easier to deal with something that's more open. Good point. It's easy to deceive ourselves yeah. because it's not so visible. You might think about, you know, are there people you're jealous of? You know, you might try to figure out what are some symptoms of that. You know, how, how can you tell if you're jealous of somebody? Feel angry against them, maybe for not even any really good reason. Everything they do starts to annoy you. Yes, man, everything they do, especially when they do things and people think highly of them, you know, just really, you know, it's like a, a you know, a thorn in your, in your side, you know, it just like really grates on you. That they did something and, and people praised him for it. You ever feel like that towards somebody? Who are typical people we feel jealous of? People who are doing great works. Yeah, people who do well. Especially people who do well who are more or less on the same level with us. Would you usually, many of you, you're, you know, from 10 to 30, would you usually feel jealous of a 60-year-old? No, probably not. You would expect a 60-year-old, yeah, to maybe be more talented or have more knowledge or more influence. You know, if you are, uh, you know, if you're preaching a sermon, there's somebody who's way more experienced than you, you don't really see yourself at the same level. You're not expecting to do as well as they do. But it's really hard to deal with jealousy when it comes to a peer. When it comes to somebody that we think, well, we should be as good as they are. What about our siblings even? Sometimes there's a lot of jealousy in families because it's hard to see a sibling get more attention than us or seem like they, they have more ability or or more popularity or whatever. Thoughts and comments about that? I think um, when you look at the, the jealousy that sort of happens between siblings, you see um, you know, one child might feel like their parents don't love them as much okay. as the other child. And I think if you, you can sort of apply that to the way that we are as brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes um, another Christian will be doing great things for the Lord and rather than admiring them for that and rejoicing with them for that, we kind of start to think about ourselves a lot and we start to think, you know, maybe God doesn't love me as much as they love this person. Yeah. So. Yes, I think so. I also think, what about, look, think about this. We, we said this, but think about it a little bit more. You know, when we're extremely competitive, we like just happy <clears throat> You know, we just become obsessed with winning. That's often true in families among siblings, where one just feels like they've got to beat the other one. 
And, and if somebody's really competitive, what are some symptoms of that? What do you see them doing? Getting angry when they lose. Getting angry when they lose. And? Every little thing becomes a competition. Yes, they become competitive in a lot of areas. Gloating when they win. Gloating when they win. Cheating to be able to win. You know, or what about this? You ever done this? Your brother or some peer wins and, and you're ready to come up with some excuse. Well, they just won because, you know, and something, you know, it wasn't a fair competition. They had some unfair advantage. So you're trying to kind of, you know, lay your loss off on that. You know, I think it's difficult for a, well, think about this. What if you had a friend you weren't jealous of? Do you have friends that you really care about, that you're really not jealous of, and you really want to see them do well? Is it harder to be really competitive with them? Yeah, especially if it matters to them. You know, if sometimes we compete in things, and we're just having fun, and we don't care who wins. You know, the competition is just more of the, the fun of it, but it doesn't matter. But if you really care about somebody and you know it matters to them to win, it's so hard to beat them. Because it just, you feel bad because you didn't want them to feel bad. You know, so I think those are all things to think about. Any other thoughts on all that? Thanks. Cameron. Okay. Um, at the end of verse 4, it asks a question, but who can stand before jealousy? And I think the next verse kind of answers that because um, it says better is open rebuke. We're not supposed to try to stand against this and not just let them be jealous with us and let um, us be jealous with others. But better than standing against it is an open rebuke and that's the way to fix it. Yeah, and we'll talk about that open rebuke in a second. Thank you. John? I think it's difficult uh, to view someone like that, because this world kind of teaches us to, you know, be competitive and try to win. You know, that's what the most of the world is revolved around. And so it may be a lot diff more difficult to actually think of them more as a brother or a sister and be able to think of it that way. Yes. Yes. Good point. Yeah. Well, it's a good person to understand that. <coughs> I think there's always like one or two people in our mind that we feel really jealous over, and we feel like, well, as long as I can prove that I'm better than them, then I'll, I'll be okay. But it's kind of funny how there's always seems to be another person that somehow we uh, progress to feel envious toward, jealous of. Well, okay, probably over this person, but then there's this other person over here. It's, it's like a never-ending spiral that if we don't conquer it, and it'll just eat us up, and we'll never find peace or satisfaction. Yeah, that's a great point. Yes, Matt. Exodus 20, verse 5. Um, you shall not serve them or serve them. Uh, or, what is it? You shall not worship them or serve them, uh, that them being idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children from the third and fifth generation of those who hate me. Um, and that's the typical answer to idols. It's just interesting that God is jealous for us. I feel like there's a certain type of jealousy that we need to have towards God. 
as opposed to material things that don't really matter? Yes, there are many things like that, that it depends on the context and the meaning. For example, would you say that anger is always wrong? Well, if you would, Jesus got angry sometimes. And the text says that. And so you can't say that every type of anger is wrong. Now, Jesus didn't get angry like sometimes we do. You know, he didn't just get mad because somebody didn't treat him right. His anger was a God-centered anger. Well, it's the same thing with jealousy. You know, think about it this way. Most of you aren't married, but you can imagine that. You know, if you got married... Would you be okay with your husband and wife flirting around with other, other people and just letting them kind of go to whoever they wanted to? Would that be all right with you? No. If it would be all right with you, what does that say? You don't really care about them. You don't really care about them and you don't really care about the relationship you have with them. You know, so jealousy in that sense means a sense of valuing them and valuing the relationship. Now, God's like that with us. You know, God's not willing to share us with other gods, other lovers, and sort of have us have divided affections. God intends for us to be exclusively devoted to him because he really loves and cares about us. So there's a sense in which jealousy, in that sense, is appropriate. That's not usually the way we're using it when we think about ourselves. It's not normally the way the Bible uses that, but there is that sense that is, is a proper emotion. Other thoughts and comments about that? Good comment. All right, how about somebody reading 5 and 6? Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. All right, so um, you look at true friendship here. What does a, a true friend do in this passage? Wounds. That doesn't strike you as a very friendly thing to do, you know. How? Why would a friend wound? Why? It's going to make you better if you care about the person. You're going to tell them the things they need to hear. You're going to help them do the right thing, even if it hurts them. Sometimes we are only worried about somebody being hurt or feeling bad. But when we're just trying to make people feel good, sometimes we hurt them more deeply. Have you ever seen parents that really spoil their kids? Like everything their kid wants, they give them. Every time the kid fusses, they cave into them. And they just try to always make their kid feel good. Do you intend to raise your children that way? Why not? Because they turn to little demons. <laughs> it doesn't make them behave better. It probably doesn't even make them better. Or make them... You know, it's, it's really terrible. A kid who gets his own way all the time becomes miserable. You know, we understand that if you really love your child, 
Sometimes it's necessary to deprive them of something or even tell them they're wrong and discipline them. When we really love somebody, we're not just thinking about their immediate feeling right then. We're thinking about what's truly best for them. And so really it's better to rebuke openly than conceal your love. The wounds of a friend are more faithful than the kisses of an enemy. You know, and, and if you're really a wise person, you'd like to be rebuked openly rather than just be made to feel good when you were doing wrong. That's a challenge for us. We see that all over Proverbs. You know, how much do we love to receive the rebuke and the correction? What about the kisses of an enemy? What's that talking about? Flattery. Flattery. Yeah. Somebody who really doesn't have our good in mind, who's always telling us really nice things. Can you think of any enemy who was involved in kissing? Judas is the classic example. You know, Judas comes up and, you know, kisses Jesus like he was a friend when really he was there stabbing him in the back. That's really uh, uh, not a good thing. Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to, you know, say something really nice to someone or about someone when really you were stabbing them in the back, you just wanted them to like you? So maybe to their face you tell them how great they are and to everybody else you go around telling them how terrible they are. That, that's, that really hurts if you've ever had that done to you. Much better, if you've got something that you are concerned about with somebody, talk to them. They're the ones who can change that. Uh, don't just deceitfully kiss them so they'll think you like them or approve of them. Comments and thoughts about that. It also shows a sense of honesty and uh, open communication between friends. Which is an important thing for good friendship. You know, if there are some times when you kind of wonder, you know, what the person really thinks about you, you know, maybe even what they might say about you to somebody else, but if they're very frank and transparent and will tell you when they really feel like there's something you need to hear, then when they approve of what you do and they express that, you can trust them. But you can't trust when they will openly talk to you about the things that they think you need to correct. So it really makes the friendship stronger if there's open rebuke and a good heart to receive it, Logan. Sometimes we treat our friends okay, and then we, dis we go against this whenever we deal with our family. Like we might be respectful to our parents' face and then behind their back around to all our friends talking about how much we hate them. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes we may be um, you know, nice to somebody who's in a position of authority over us, you know, to try to get our way or get something from them, uh, but then not really feel that. That's a good point. Right. I like how this proverb especially is written, because in the beginning he talks about uh, pride, really. And all these problems source from pride. Good point. Pride's kind of the soil in which most sins come from, isn't it? Then, 
I'm kind of venturing forward a little bit with this, maybe some of the implications here. Um, obviously, the kisses and the flattery, um, praises of, you know, that, that being deceitful, that being an enemy is a bad thing. Um, and surely honesty should be our key for some of that. Um, I don't know, but I think about Paul and sometimes how he praised some of the people that he wrote letters to and how he would introduce or perhaps even include you know, his letters with praising them. Um, what would be a good pattern for that? I mean, obviously, I need to be honest, but is there harm in perhaps overpraising or perhaps, you know, uh, being too open about your appreciation of them? Could we do harm to our people or to our, to our friends? Or what would be a good standard for that? Do you ever find it harmful to you when somebody praises you? Or is there some damaging things you feel if you get praised too much? Oftentimes when somebody is complimenting, especially if they compliment you a lot, I know with me it, it's harder to not get a big head, like not not get really prideful, start like boasting like verse two talks about like, boasting myself because this person's complimenting, I must be good. Yeah, have you ever felt that? You get a lot of praise and then you feel prideful and overconfident. You know, would you uh, would you make a better ball player if all you did was tell them how great they were doing and how wonderful a player they are? What will a ball player like that probably do? <laughs> do what? Stay the same. Stay the same. Kind of relax and coast and not try any harder. So you could see how praise could be negative. Any other negative consequences you felt with being praised? You start to look down on other people too. Maybe you start to feel so high about yourself that you feel other people aren't as good. You start to feel like the source of what you've been doing well is within yourself and not from God. Yes, that's exactly right. Sometimes it's even awkward. You found it really kind of uncomfortable if somebody's just telling you how great they are. You know, that's, you know, if somebody expresses a certain degree of appreciation or respect, that's okay. But if they keep doing that, it's sort of, I don't know, you don't know how to handle that. It's just kind of, doesn't seem very appropriate. So how could we praise people properly? How, how, what, what do we need to think about or do to show proper appreciation? Micah? Give thanks to God for how he has worked in their lives. Not just say, you are great, you have done all these things. See, it, whenever we were looking at Paul and how he addresses him, he thanks God for all the things that he has done through the grace of mercy. That's a great point. Do you see Paul doing that in a lot of his letters? Where he will sort of compliment the people, but what he really says is, I thank God all the time for these things God's doing in you. That's really helpful because it gives the praise to the Lord, which he deserves, and makes the person being complimented recognize that it's not so much a compliment to them, but it is a recognition of what God's doing in them. I think that's much safer. What else might help us to praise properly? Ephesians 4, 29 talks about using words that build up rather than tear down. I think it's interesting that, that all of this is in connection with jealousy that's already spoken of. We're not going to be uh, helpful in our words toward another person if we're jealous of them. So we're going to find it very difficult. 
to say anything good about them. That our words should be not just simply to give them a big head, but to build them up and to uh, 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 help them uh, along the way. Very good. I mean, there have been times when I have just asked somebody, you know, is this hard for you if I express some sort of appreciation or respect for what you're doing? Sometimes people said, yeah, that makes it more tempting for me. And I think just knowing the person and observing, there may be times that it's helpful to know that what I did was okay. That, you know, maybe times it's encouraging to see that. But being moderate in that may be a key. To express, hey, hey, that was cool. I'm, I'm glad you did that. That was encouraging. But not going to an extreme with that. Trying to be moderate and balanced. Karen? Going along with that, in a way that would be helpful is to not bring up in front of other people. Because that might embarrass them and like, oh, well, I wasn't that great or whatever. Or it might make them um, more pride about it because, oh, well, they're telling all these people, yeah, you know, in fact, it was better than that because I did this and this. But what you should do is go up <laughs> and talk to them and just privately, person on person, and to let them know that you appreciate that they're doing that and encourage them to keep doing it, but not to get a big head about it. You know, something else that you might think about with what Paul did. When Paul would say, I thank God for what he's doing in you, what would he most always also do in the letters? Correct them. Correct them, the open rebuke. You know, he would recognize their good qualities, what God had done in them, but he would also frankly talk about the things that were wrong. What about the letters in the book of Revelation to each of the churches? I know your good things, and in most of the letters, and I know your bad things. You know, God was not trying to flatter them. He was recognizing their strengths, but also correcting their weaknesses. That may be helpful. Other thoughts? We also need to be careful what we compliment people for. Because we tend to compliment people on stuff like, well, they're so great at sports, or they're an eloquent speaker, you know, things like that. We ought, what we ought to be building them up in is things that matter. Yes, good point. We could make them have too great an interest in doing something that doesn't really matter. Yeah. Other thoughts? Good comments. I think it's interesting uh, uh, the, the word deceitful is used there in verse 6. Deceitful of the kisses of an enemy. The uh, footnote says excessive. You used the word moderation there. And, uh, uh, that, that kind of talks always too much. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's ever that good, are they? Yeah. And you tend to recognize that. In fact, if somebody starts complimenting you in an extreme, what does that usually make you feel? They're not honest. <laughs> they want something. Suspicious. Well, they don't know you. Or they don't know you. And sometimes they don't, and they praise you all this. There was, there was in my, my growing up years, there was, a, uh, there was a man who I did not know real well. I didn't see him very often. He lived in another place. But he was kind of a family friend, and from time to time I saw him. Every time I saw him, 
he would just go on and on praising me. It was very awkward for me. And, you know, I think at the time I didn't know why I felt so uncomfortable with him. But I later had occasion to be physically near him. And he didn't pay any attention to me. And it dawned on me, you know, I sensed how insincere his praise was. Now, I, I'm not saying he was a bad person in every sense. I don't really know what he was trying to accomplish with that. But it just made me feel, I don't know, it just wasn't comfortable at all. And I think, well, for one thing, when he praised me so much when he did barely know me, it made me realize there's something not right about that. You know, it just didn't feel, didn't feel right. And then once I lived closer and realized that, you know, there was no action to correspond to that, then I understood what had made me uncomfortable. It was really insincere. And, and we need to be careful about that. Some people just have kind of a technique of just telling you how wonderful you are. You know, maybe they're trying to be encouraging, but it ends up seeming really shallow. And uh, you know if somebody doesn't really know you, but they want to tell you all these wonderful things about yourself, that, that they're certainly not being really honest. So we need to be more honest and frank. It really helps build deeper relationships. Other thoughts? There's another side of this, too. Have you ever had anybody to come to you running themselves down, uh, sort of fishing for compliments. Yes. Yes. I remember in eighth grade, the I was I played in the band. I through eighth grade. I was not really all that uh, able with that, but it was fun through eighth grade. And the the first chair trumpet, he was good. Whoa. He was good. But he would always talk about how bad he was, especially around his girlfriend. You know, he would always be running himself down. And it really got annoying because it certainly appeared that he was trying to get her to tell him how great he was. And he was really talented in everything. He was like the class president, he was this, he was that. Well, it really seemed hokey to talk about how bad he was when he was light years ahead of the rest of us. And it just, it just you know, was almost made you irritated because you felt like, why do you need to fish for more compliments when you're already Mr. Everything in the school? <laughs> you know, it is annoying. And, and you'll see that all the time. You know, you ever, you ever hear somebody, or maybe you've done this, get up to maybe preach a, give a talk or preach a sermon, and say, well, you know, I know I can't really talk well, and I just really, I not, don't really know very much, and I've really had a hard week, and so I haven't had very much time to prepare, <laughs> And I know I'm really going to do a bad job on this. Is that very helpful? <laughs> you know, what's that drawing the attention to? You really shouldn't be up there. <laughs> 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 and to yourself. It's kind of taken away the attention from the Lord. And now we're thinking, well, I wonder how bad he's going to do. <laughs> Instead of thinking about the Lord and the message. Uh, it's just, you know, it's so easy for us to think about ourselves and to draw attention to ourselves, either trying to build ourselves up or run ourselves down, and either way we're thinking about the wrong thing, we're thinking about us. 
you know, pride and feeling inferior are kind of two sides of the same coin. They're both self-focused. Better to forget ourselves and just think about the Lord and focus on Him. If you don't do a very good job, do the kind of job you're able to do that God's given you the ability to do. And that's all He expects out of you. If you haven't done as well as you stood in preparing, then pray for forgiveness and prepare better next time. But to focus on you and get everybody thinking about you is really not going to help. Other thoughts? Helen. In this whole um, talk about rebuke and, and love and the, the ways that people treat us to make us feel good or to really correct us, I think one thing to think about, at least for me, is my attitude towards all this. Um, like if someone is really trying to help me, that is going to be the person that makes me feel bad immediately at, at the time instead of you know, making me feel good. And so a lot of times I react badly to that and I don't have a good attitude towards it. And I th the first thing I think of is just all the kings in the Old Testament, like Ahab, who would constantly have his advisors tell him all these nice things, and he'd feel really good. But it was the people who were truthful and honest that hurt him and he didn't want to listen to. Um, and so I think that's something that we need to think about ourselves that I need to think about, um, is my attitude towards people who really, truly are trying to help me, make me feel bad, sometimes right at the time. Absolutely. Sometimes we can purposely surround ourselves with flatterers and people who will constantly be yes-men for us. You know, it's much better to be around the people who will challenge us and who are not afraid to tell us things that we need to hear. It, it's just, it, it's such a challenge to want the right thing in that. It's a challenge for me to want to have wise people correct me because it's painful to think about your failing. But is it better to just keep not doing well and not doing it? You know, that's not really better. Just somebody pointing out things you need to improve in, that's not sh that, that in itself doesn't, doesn't make you have, have done worse. It just helps you know it so you, can so you don't do as badly the next time. It's, it's so much better to be rebuked. Other thoughts? I think that might be the key to what... Daniel has brought up about Paul. That's what he did. He, he practiced while doing this. Yes. I got something else that I'm going to have to say, but there's some good things. Yes. <laughs> you see the balance in that. It's helpful. You know, it is helpful to know you're not totally worthless, to see that there are some things that the Lord has blessed you with and blessed you in. And being you know, showing respect for the good qualities at the same time rebuking the bad ones is a, is a helpful thing. You'd like to feel like somebody does see something that the Lord is doing. Mm -hmm. Other thoughts? Okay. One family I know, about once a month, they do a thing that the kids call the criticism game, which couldn't start off as a game. It was just the kids liked it, so they called it a game. Um, but it's about once a month, they go around the table, and everyone gives, every, each person gives, um, they, they focus on one person at a time, and they go around and give, everyone gives that person a compliment that they've thought about, and something that they've noticed that they've been doing well in this past month. And then everybody goes around the table and gives them a criticism, and they're not allowed to make excuses. But it's, it gives them 
uh, opportunity to hear something that they've been doing well in. And sometimes that thing that they've been doing well in was a thing that they got criticized for the week, the month before. Uh, and it was a no, you've been, you've been improving. Um, and they also know, like their dad knows, like if he gets six criticisms <laughs> from the family, that it's something he really needs to work on. <laughs> but so it, it gives them a chance to, to, an opportunity for the whole family and a helpful environment to hear both sides. Yeah, interesting thoughts. You know, have you ever thought that you kind of wish you knew maybe what people really saw in you? You know, it, it would be uh, perhaps painful, but if you really knew what other wise people uh, thought about you, there might be some real advantages. You might see some things that you could really work on. But so often, even our manner drives that away. Is it wrong to ask for that? Um, it may depend on how and why you ask for it. I don't think it's at all bad to say, you know, I would really appreciate, you know, some constructive criticism. The thing you have to watch about that, I think, is that sometimes we say that in such a way as we're sort of fishing for a compliment, you know. Uh, so I think we have to be careful about how we say that and what our motive is. But I think to have that kind of spirit, and even sometimes to ask for that, if we've got the right attitude toward it, can be helpful. I mean, there are some times when I have cared about somebody and I have wished that I could say some things to them that I thought would help them. But I wasn't sure how they would take it. Or even I was pretty sure from how they've taken other things that they wouldn't take it well. Either they'd be really sensitive or they'd be really defensive and resentful. You know, I was talking with somebody recently who has been pretty open with me in the past and has taken some things well, I've said. And I'd seen some things that concerned me and I said, I'm, I'm really concerned about you, about some things. And man, very defensive. I don't know why you feel that way and just very much kind of pushed me away with that. And that was, that, that was difficult. For one thing, it kind of shut me off from being able to help them. There were some things that I would really like to have been able to say that the person, by being defensive already because I said I'm concerned about you, really blocked the opportunity to do that. And, you know, you can do that. You can act in such a way that people don't have much opportunity to really help you. To, and so, I've thought about this before. What if somebody, let's say, you've got a friend who, who corrects you in something and really they weren't right about it. They didn't understand the situation or whatever. And it's really not a justified criticism. I've thought about, you know, even in those situations, it's really important for me to show how much I appreciate their concern for me and trying to correct me because I don't want them the next time not to say what they're thinking because the next time they may get it right. So rather than being defensive, I may explain something calmly, but I need to really make them feel good about the fact that they love me enough to try to help me. You know, there are people who get kind of reputations as being touchy, and you just really can't talk to them, and you sure wouldn't want to say anything to them to try to correct them because they don't take it well. Well, 
I don't want to have that reputation. I don't want people to see me that way. Because if they see me that way, they're probably not going to tell me the things I need to hear. And that's so much worse. Thoughts. Verse 7. One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Isn't that a cool proverb? <laughs> Hunger is the best cook. <laughs> Isn't that true? You know, if you're really full, do you almost get to the place, this is probably better for the females to answer, maybe the guys never get really full, but do you ever get to the place where just nothing tastes good? Nothing sounds good because you're full. You know, so, you know, anything you eat, I don't like the way that tastes. But have you ever been really hungry? You know, and has when you've been really hungry, even something that wasn't very good, you know, even McDonald's tastes good, you know, or whatever, because you're hungry. So, what's the point of that? You know, is this just trying to tell us, you know, how we can get our food to taste better? <laughs> or is there some deeper point in that? The longer we wait for something, the more the reward will be sweet. Yes. There's a lot of ways of expressing that, but that's exactly right. Think about how you feel if you get everything you start to want the moment you start to want it versus how you feel if you wanted something for a long, long time before you were ever able to receive it. Like the kid whose parents spoil him rotten and everything he ever expressed any interest in, he's got immediately. He doesn't like anything. Because he's, he's, too, he's too sated. You know, it's, he, he's got too much. You know, d being deprived of something for a long time increases the pleasure, not decreases it. Logan. What does the word sated mean? Sated means like full. Okay. Yeah. Really full. So, um, you know... If, if we don't have everything we want, we don't get everything the way we like it, we'll actually gain more enjoyment. It's almost like drugs. You know, the more you do of them, the harder stuff you need to give you the same high. Or it's almost like adventure. The more extreme things you do, then the more extreme things you have to do to get the same adrenaline rush. You know, so really there's a lot of blessings in not having too much. Uh, you know, it, it makes us appreciate things in life more. There's probably a lot of applications of that. I mean, that's kind of a, just a truism that you could think about in a lot of ways, Cameron. Just the way it's placed, I think um, I, my mind immediately goes to um, the rebukes and different. Um, and we were talking about compliments earlier. And if someone gets a lot of compliments, 
but then they probably don't need any more compliments. It's not really gonna help them. It might make them um, prideful, but it's not really gonna help them. But if they're not getting any compliments and they deserve some compliments, then they would appreciate it a lot more. And same with rebukes. If they're getting rebuked from everybody, then maybe that's not the place to rebuke, rebuke them. But if they're not being rebuked for something wrong, then that's where they actually will get help from it. Think about this application springing off of that then. What if there's a lost person who needs to come to the Lord? What's the best way to help them see their need for the Lord? Tell them how great they are all the time. Tell them what wonderful qualities they have and what a wonderful Christian they'd be and what a great asset they'd be to our church and just continue to flatter them and make them feel great about themselves. Do you see a flaw in that approach? It's not what the Lord says about them. It's not the, well, that's exactly right. It's not the Lord's opinion about them. And what else? Well, think they're okay where they are. Yeah, why, why come to Christ if you're doing so great without Him? You know, the reason we come to the Lord is because we're hungry and we have nothing that can fill us up. So, really, we have to help the person see their need and their lostness not feel how wonderful they are. Sometimes we use the very opposite approach. You know, what would, what would happen if you went to the doctor and you've got some terrible disease, but he says, well, you're doing great. You look wonderful. All your tests came back positive. You know, it's great. Now, please take this medicine. Or, you know, you're doing great. Everything's going right. And I want to I schedule surgery next week. <laughs> What are you going to say to that doctor? <laughs> going to show up for the surgery when everything's looking great? You know, he, if he's going to cut on you, he's probably going to have to show you, look, here's the numbers. They're supposed to be here and they're down there. You know, here's the EKG and it, the normal one looks this way and here's one of yours looks. Yours looks you know, etc. I mean, he's got to convince you that you need it. Well, who's going to? Let you perform the surgery. Let him perform the surgery. Eric. I was thinking about a different angle on this first. Um, it just made me think about people looking for a spouse that are really desperate, and then they lower their standards to where any bitter thing is sweet. <laughs> yeah, I think it would. Yes. Sometimes uh, we can get too hungry, and. Uh, then we, uh, you know, swallow things that are poisonous. So, yeah, don't be desperate or you'll wish you hadn't. Dad. Maybe another application of this, I don't know, maybe the next time that we find ourselves thinking about, well, that Bible study's a little bit dry. I didn't get much of that singing or that sermon is a little bit not very helpful. Or maybe we should just ask ourselves how hungry are we for truth or how hungry we are for that. Because if we're just, you know, turning our noses up at everything, then perhaps that tells, is an indication that we're really not that interested that's a good application. What about uh, the people who are so entertained to death that nothing that's not super exciting, you know, all sorts of blood and gore on the screen or whatever, then it's, uh, it's you know, they're not interested. You know, we can sometimes fill ourselves up with so much filler, so much empty stuff. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, you know, what happens if you eat a whole bunch of candy bars? Right before dinner. You don't want to eat the real food. 
You know, do your parents, have you, did, when you were younger, did your parents ever say, you can't eat that now, it'll spoil your appetite? And that, the, did you hear that? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's true. You know, you get to where, you know, you don't even want to eat, not because you've had nutrients, but you've got a lot of empty calories and it filled your stomach up. We fill our life up with a bunch of empty things and then we have no hunger for the Lord. Good point. I have to remember some of these applications. Those have been helpful. Other thoughts? One more. <laughs> I was just listening to a lesson about Christian music, Christian rock, and he was just pointing out that in our culture now, some people don't, they're not really interested in hymns, just some acapella, or just even what we older people would call good music because they're so used to that rock stuff that and that rock stuff came from an origin of rebellion and just um, has grown into now everything has to be rock, Christian rock. And so young people are wondering, well, what's wrong with instrumental music? Because we don't like that style that we used to that people used to do. We like this style of music. So we only listen to this style of music. And so, you know, it just bounce it off. Yeah, well, we can get to where we're thinking more about the feeling we feel mm -hmm. the than about the edification and the meaning. Which should probably occur either direction. We like our style, we get a feeling from that, but we ought to really be listening beyond whatever the musical style is to the content and being built up by that rather than focusing on, oh, I like the sound of this. Mm -hmm. You know, the sound's not really what the Lord's listening for, <laughs> but sometimes because a certain sound makes us feel a certain thing, that's what we're really focused on. And we can fill ourselves up with the sound and not with the meaning. He pointed out there's a message in the instruments and there's a message in the words. Yes. And we can't hear the words for that style that we're after. Yes. Yeah, when that becomes our focus, you know, we can do that with a lot of worship things mm -hmm. where what we want is just kind of a, a feeling produced but not something that we're thinking and really praising God from our heart. It's just, this is exciting to me, or it makes me feel good, or whatever. And so I think for all of us, we have to kind of challenge ourselves. You go to a foreign country sometimes, and their style of worship, their style of singing, and other things <coughs> may be very different, and you don't get nearly as much out of it. But why don't you get as much out of it? Is it because it's not edifying or because it just doesn't make you feel the same way those other things did? So it really makes you think about, you know, being more substantial and really focusing on what we ought to rather than filling ourselves up with that emotional high we just feel. Good point. Other thoughts? Yes, Jessica. Uh, I, I think, too, like, if you think about the book, outside, you know, that there's, they have this hang, like, hunger of, like, wanting to learn 
and they sometimes end up accepting other things, like a bitter thing, like other religions and stuff, because <coughs> they can't find, you know, the sweet, you know, yeah. case. But they are looking for it, but they just can't find it. And it, like, if it's like for us to try to teach and look for those people, you know, and try to show them the, the sweet part. Good point. Do you feel like sometimes there may be people who, if they had help knowing the sweet gospel, they wouldn't be filling themselves up with just anything? Yeah, exactly. And we've got to seek those people out more. There, I, I think, and I, you know, I've recently been knocking on some doors to set up Bible studies and been talking to more people. And it just, every time you start talking to people, I get impressed by how many young people there are who have absolutely no frame of reference. They are lost. I, talk, I knocked on the door Tuesday of a guy and he came to the door and he looked like he'd spent some time on the other side of the tracks morally. And he was 24, and he just told me right up front, I got out of prison 10 days ago. He'd been in prison for three or four years. And so we started talking. And I, I don't remember what point I was trying to illustrate. We talked for a few minutes in the door. And I was trying to illustrate something. I said, well, have you ever had like an older person, like an adult, that you really trusted? Now, I was, was trying to then make a point off of that person. He said, well, my parents, they all worked so much, I never saw them. And No, not really. Can you imagine never having any older person in your life that you ever trusted? No wonder people get confused. And these are wonderful opportunities. People who are hungry, who we don't want them getting filled up on the wrong thing. If we present the gospel to them, some of them would recognize that's what they really need. Rachel. I think it's just amazing to see how everyone has a God-shaped hole in their hearts. And I think that's one of the reasons why our culture these days is so flooded with all sorts of different types of entertainment opportunities is that we're all looking for this kind of fulfillment that ultimately only comes from Christ and from the gospel. Um, and yet we just we, we let ourselves be fulfilled by other things and ultimately it's just it's not there. So who is there around you? that would listen to the gospel if you offer You know, who is there at your school, in your neighborhood, uh, at, the, at the gym with you or whatever, that if you'd say, man, I'd really like to read the Bible with you, or I'd really like to share with you some things that have really helped me in my life, who is there who would listen? Who is there if you actually were willing to try to care about them, love them, pray for them, and try to reach out to them, would recognize that what you are offering in the gospel is really what they need. And, and so often we have so many open doors. It amazes me to just go up to strangers' house and knock on the door, and how open many people are to at least discussing things. You know, I. Wow. And we sometimes have the habit of saying, nobody will listen. Well, nobody will listen if we don't talk. <laughs> Other thoughts? Good application. Right. I saw a preview for an action movie um, recently, and 
like every scene that it shows you was no longer than two seconds. It was just constantly flashing and changing. It's as if it was written for someone with the attention span of a goldfish or something. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, it's kind of the way entertainment has made us, I think. You know, we, you know, I'm here, you know, keep my attention, but I don't want to think for myself. Um, you know, it really makes it difficult for us to focus on, you know, something that's not fun and isn't going to produce many results until maybe a long time later. Disconnecting the TV and the computer could really help us a lot, don't you think? And maybe the Walkman and the uh, MP3 player and whatever else is blaring at us. And then you're going to disconnect, take the battery out. Other thoughts? Okay. Uh, somebody want to read 8 to 10? Like a bird that wanders from the, her nest, so is a man who wanders from his home. Oil, oil and perfume make his heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend. Do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Okay, look at verse 8. What happens to a bird when they wander from their nest? They're probably going to die because... No protection. No protection. Nobody there to care for them, to help them. Well, what happens when a ma man wanders away from his home? Probably the same thing. Now, we're talking about people who maybe just turn <laughs> their back on their support, on their family and friends, because they just kind of want to do their own thing. They want to go explore the world, or they want to just go off and launch off in some adventure. There's some risks associated with not sticking with the support network and the family that, that we've had. You know, and, and just this idea, I love to wander, and I love to just experience stuff. You know, I want to just go off and experience anything different. It's not very wise. You know, sometimes it may satisfy our sense of adventure or excitement, but it probably does that at the expense of our, uh, you know, safety. Thoughts and comments about that? Cameron. I have a note in my Bible that says that the literal word for, that is there for home is place. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how correct that is, but um, that reminds me of Ecclesiastes um, 12, verses 13 and 14. It says... The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this is the whole of man and then it says for God will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it's good or evil I think that's our place um, it says it's the whole of man that's what man is for is to serve God is to fear God and when we wander away from that place our place our home that's when the trouble started on the road. good point yeah other thoughts All right, in verse uh, 9, he talks about the blessing of the counsel from a friend. That's kind of what we've been talking about, is how, 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 much, how good it is when a friend will tell us the advice we need. And in connection with that, verse 10, you know, when we're in difficult situations, we ought to turn to a, a proven friend 
who's near us. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend. Do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother far away. You know, there's some value to friendships that are nearby. In fact, there's a value in friendships that are deeper and that are closer. Be what's, the, what's the blessing of having a deeper, closer, more constant friendship? You can be more open with them. You can be more open with them. And they can... Help you more. Why? They know you better. They know you better. They may feel more confidence to speak to you what you need to hear because of the relationship. Sometimes we are satisfied with a lot of superficial relationships, but we don't really ever let anyone get very close to us. That's insecure. But it keeps people from maybe helping us in deeper ways. Somebody who knows you really well you've been able to develop a deeper bond with is probably going to be a lot more helpful in every situation than some distant relative you rarely see. Can you think of some biblical examples of deep, close friendships? Dave and Jonathan are probably the classic. And they just really helped each other so much because they really did care about each other. They developed their relationship it was, it was a relationship based on the Lord, and, and it was such a blessing. They were both so unselfish in that friendship. That's the kind of relationships we need to be looking for and developing. Comments and thoughts on that? I think when it comes to going to a neighbor who is nearby, something I notice is that when there's stuff going on in our lives, God often gives us uses that for opportunities for us to develop relationships with people that maybe we didn't, we weren't as close with before. I mean, like um, sometimes maybe you'll have something on your mind and it'll kind of show because you'll kind of you know, you'll just be acting that way. And someone that you don't, you're not even that close with, will say, "Hey, are you all right?" And that will start a, an entire conversation. That by the end of it, you will have a deeper relationship with that person. Mm -hmm. Good point. We need to seek that. Seek the, the friend that's closer than a brother. Other thoughts? All right, why don't we take a break here, and then we'll uh, continue working on Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27, 11 to 13. Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad, that I may answer him who reproaches me. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer. <coughs> Take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger, and hold in pledge when he puts up security for an adulteress. Okay, in verse 11, what do you see here? What, what's he telling his son? <coughs> Why? To make his heart glad. Make me happy and <clears throat> he 
he can answer people who question him or... yes do you see how that works <laughs> what's that say yes really one of our best defenses as far as our character is concerned <laughs> is having wise children you know that that's an interesting way to look at that but you don't realize how much your conduct and behavior either helps or hurts your parents reputation <coughs> you know wise children make their parents look good and 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 help people to respect them more <coughs> something that I have noticed that's been very helpful to me generally speaking people around here know my kid and they trust me more because they know my kids. Sometimes I've been in other places farther away from here and people are more suspicious. They're more not sure you know, whether to trust me or not. And I think that's one of the biggest factors. It's amazing how much you know, God giving you wise children you know, gives you an answer to those who reproach you. You know, because you normally think that wise children are a reflection of at least decent parents. <laughs> you know, if your kids don't have major obvious hang-ups, people are assuming you're at least a decent parent. You might think about that in a different connection also. You know, remember what uh, John said in, in like uh, uh, 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And I don't think he meant there his physical offspring. I think he meant his children in the faith. And think about what a joy it is to have those that we've nurtured along in the faith to do well. And again, when, when those that we've tried to help come to the Lord and grow stronger in the Lord are doing well. That's a pretty good recommendation of our character and makes a difference. You know, um, churches, for example, who are thinking about asking an evangelist to come and work with them often want to know, well, how have the churches done where he's been? You know, that may, may tell you something about it. Well, comments and questions about verse 11? Well, what about verse 12? What does the wise man do? Protects himself from evil. Yes. He is thoughtful and he observes things that are wrong. He doesn't walk into dangerous situations deliberately. The naive man, however, is oblivious to all danger. He just, you know, lunges forward, you know, regardless of what terrible things may await him. It's wise to be cautious. It's wise to think about possible dangers. You think of somebody who's, who never realizes what they're about to blunder into as being very foolish. So a wise person is cautious, is careful, sees the danger and avoids it. That kind of thing. Um, it's kind of cool to see the contrast between the wise man who hides himself from evil, and back in chapter 6, the man who runs rapidly to do evil. Good point. Yes. Logan. Seeing this attitude um, in this man that he hides himself from evil, I think about Joseph, who ran, literally ran from evil, 
And what we do sometimes is like we say, well, I ought to be strong enough to handle it. We try and stand in the road and withstand it. Yeah, absolutely. Doesn't make a lot of sense to unnecessarily expose ourselves to things that will hurt us. Some people never seem to realize it. You know, you think about an example like this. You know, some of your high school buddies are going to a big party. And what do you think? Well, that'll be fun. You know, there'll be uh, some cool people there. You know, I, I think I'll go. Well, what should you ask before you go or think about? <coughs> What's it going to be like? Uh, what are they going to be doing? You know, what kind of influences will this be on me? You know, what are the characters of the people who are going and things like that? But there's some people who are like, oh, well, it'll be fun. Yeah, I'll go. Have a great time. And they plunge into something that may really hurt or destroy them morally. You know, uh, people might do that going to movies. Oh, everybody says this is a good movie. Well, what about its effect on you morally? Why do a lot of people have gone? You know, things like that. You know, a wise person stops and asks some questions. And thinks about, well, you know, will this help me? Will this hurt me? Will this be dangerous to me? But, but a, a naive person never thinks about that. They just kind of, you know, plunge forward. We ought to think about the impact on our soul before we do anything. Some people will do that in the job they select. You know, they prepare themselves for a profession that may them involve them in some difficult, uh, you know, moral issues or may influence them in a bad way. You know, those are things to think about. You don't just, you know, choose a job without thinking about how it might affect you in your relationship with God. Some people do that when they're choosing a college. You know, what would be good things to think about when you're like uh, choosing as to where to go to college? Church locations? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, is there a good place to worship the Lord with other Christians? And is that group strong and helpful and encouraging? Uh, that'd be a good thing to do. You know, what kind of environment does a school have? Is it going to be really destructive to me morally? And things like that. You know, right. Sometimes different degree programs are much more eroding on our faith than others. Absolutely. Not every, uh, uh, you know, course of study in higher education is good for us spiritually. What would be the kinds of... Uh, degree programs that would be the we need to have the most maybe concern for as a Christian. You know, be more wary of. Especially degrees that teach like worldly ideas. Yes. What kind of degrees tend to teach worldly ideas? Science. Science to some extent because you've got some evolution in a lot of natural <laughs> sciences. Even more destructive probably are philosophy and psychology. Philosophy, psychology, sociology, anthropology, history, all the social science stuff. Because at least in physical sciences, sooner or later, it can have to work. You know, in social sciences, anybody's idea is as good as the next person. Depends on the school, depends on several factors. But those, those <coughs> courses, are probably some of the ones to be most careful about because social sciences can really be destructive. 
entertainment or acting or any of those types of careers? Yes. <laughs> because what do those careers generally involve? You know, I mean, um, how, how much pressure will there be to get involved in immoral and unrighteous things? I mean, what about you go to some state university and get involved in the drama stuff? Uh, you know, well, what kind of plays are they going to be putting on? What kind of messages are they going to be promoting? You know, it's fun to act. That's not a, you know, there's nothing terrible about that, uh, you know, kind of thing. But in a lot of places, what they do in that is really not a good thing. But sometimes Christians never even think about that. Oh, I like doing this. <laughs> well, you've got to always look ahead. But yeah, but where's that going to lead you? And what is that going to involve you in? It's a good point. You know, there are some even sports activities that involve you in dressing immodestly, may involve you in being around a lot of people in the locker room or whatever that may be really a negative influence on you. You know, in general, most sports are healthy activities. You know, it's good to get exercise. You know, team collaboration sometimes is a positive thing. But you have to think about, are there some negatives in doing this in this context? Sometimes it's things that seem so innocent even that can be really negative and destructive to us. What, and and you, I, I knew a, a guy many, many years ago in, in my life that he went to, uh, he, he decided to go to a college, a small college, because they offered him an athletic scholarship. There was no church anywhere around. There was no spiritual. He didn't think about that. Wasn't, he, he had a scholarship. He had a guy that paid for it. Well, it paid for his college, but it cost him his soul. At least at the time, he fell away, and I don't think he's ever returned to the Lord. So you think about more than just the money. Other illustrations of, of this, or things you want to say about this? Cameron. I think sometimes we have that attitude to where what we can get away with. And like with the college, well, th there's this church around there, there's, uh, and there are good people there, and so I can be a Christian there. But the atmosphere around this isn't good. Or maybe it's some sport. And well, this sport people don't normally dress well for, but I can. I can be a difference there, but is it good for us to be around those kind of people who won't be dressing fine? And different things like that, we see what we can get away with. And be Christians, and certainly we want to make a difference, but we need to find out what's right for us to be a part of. Yeah, good point. Sometimes we might overrate our strength in that. Or we might expose ourselves to some terrible dangers in the process that really isn't wise for us to expose ourselves to. Logan? One of the specific dangers is we get really desensitized to stuff. We might be strong enough that we don't start doing it. But the more and more we're around, it's like, well, God tells us not to do this. But, you know, we, we don't really have an appalling nature to it. We kind of start to see it as really kind of normal. And what's going to happen when we start having the attitude towards it, how long is it going to be before we fall even further into that? Yeah, it's a good point. Absolutely. Right. An illustration I've heard, kind of going along with what Cameron said, um, is that our job as Christians is like, here is the, the realm of good and here's the realm of bad. And a lot of people try to get as close to the line between them as you possibly can while staying in good. 
But when you do that, I think you've already gone to the bad side. Our job as Christians is to stay as far away from the alien as we possibly can. We would do that with most kinds of dangers. You know, do you get as close to the wall, you know, bear as you can without it uh, eating you, uh, you know, or whatever? Do you get as close to the cliff as possible before you uh, fall off? So uh, wisdom is to uh, watch out for the danger and steer clear. Rachel? Um, I was just going to say, you know, sometimes the whole, the whole idea of being, becoming desensitized to the sin around us, I think sometimes it's easier for us to become desensitized and we want to become desensitized because we are supposed to be sickened by the sin that's all around us. And that's very unpleasant for us and it's very uncomfortable for us. So we just, we would rather just get used to it and just, you know, sort of let it become something, we may not do it ourselves, but just let it not bother us as much as it should because it's unpleasant for us and we don't wanna, we don't wanna be sickened by it. Yeah, good point. Yeah, very good point. That is how we need to view it, Kath. Coming along with that, James four four says, "You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world and makes himself an enemy of God." So that's not even being a friend of the world; that's wishing <coughs> to be one. Yes. Yeah, sometimes we want that acceptance and approval and sense of belonging with the wrong crowd. You know. Other thoughts? Ethan. Kind of like what Ryan was talking about with how close we can get to that to that line. It reminded me of when my brothers and I were younger and we go to our grandparents' house down in Tennessee. They have a they have a river, a creek. And we try we we weren't allowed to get in the water on Sundays and we'd see how close we could get when we were playing. And suddenly that bank falls in and washes out because it's weak. That area is weak and we end up sitting right in the middle of it. It's just, just like sin and like, or the world. When we, when we try to see how close we can get, that's unstable ground there. And it will wash out and you'll find yourself sitting right in the middle of it all. Yeah, we like to back into sin. You know, we inch ever closer or saying, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this. Uh, you know, because we don't, we can't handle psychologically saying, well, I'm just going to do it. So we all the while proclaim to our conscience, no, I'm fine, as we're inching ever closer and finally the ground gives way and we're in it. Yeah, good point. Thirteen, he warns about this idea of co-signing the loan again. Better get collateral from the co-signer. Protect your investment. He'll sure lose it. You know, especially co-signing for a stranger or for uh, him co-signing for an immoral woman. You know, uh, that's even more foolish. Bad to co-sign for a friend, but you don't even know the person. Sometimes we're, we have this false sense of... Um, I don't know, need to, to help. Like, you know, we're willing to, to commit ourselves to somebody that we don't know anything about. You know, just because they gave us a nice story. Don't make open-ended commitments. You know, if somebody needs some help, just give him what you've got to give him. But co-signing his loan is giving you an obligation that you may not even be able to discharge. Anything about that? 
All right, uh, 14 to 17. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice in the early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Well, in verse 14, this guy is out there blessing his friend with a loud voice early in the morning. Do you see a problem with that? Yeah. It'll wake everybody up. Yeah, you particularly. <laughs> you know, um, and so uh, you'd like to be blessed by your friend, but he's picking the wrong time and place. <laughs> Loud voice early in the morning. Do you see the point of this proverb? Is it time to speak and is it time to shut up? Yes, I think it goes deeper than that. What's he really getting at here? What about a guy who's blessing you in a loud voice early in the morning? He wants attention. He wants attention? Premature. A premature what? Wants something from you. Wants something from you? Yeah, don't you see it as being hypocritical? He's going to some really extravagant lengths. To, to create an impression. To me, it seems insincere. That's unnatural. You know, he's out there at 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, with a loudspeaker telling you how wonderful you are. What, what's the deal? You know, uh, clearly there's something not right. When, when you see somebody who's just really unnaturally telling you how great you are, it seems like a tactic. It seems like some, uh, you know, some way of getting something out of you or setting you up for something. You know, you tend to, to feel like that's not, that's not right. That's not normal. And, uh, you know, it ends up being a curse. So, you know, be appropriate about your praise. And um, I, I worry for us that sometimes we compliment to get friends. You know, sometimes it becomes a technique. I just kind of learn to say nice things to people because they tend to like me more when I do it. So it becomes just kind of my way of, of getting friendships. You know, because if you tell somebody they're great, then they, they'll, they'll want to be close to you. We should never do that. That's insincere. That's not helpful. I think that's the point of this. Do you have some thoughts and comments about that? Don't keep a friend around that's like this. And, and, and really, you probably won't. You know, eventually, that, that'll get old. Um, so be, be thoughtful and not showy about your professions of, you know, praising someone. Think about your motives. In 15 and 16, he's warning about what? 
Yes, that wife who's always complaining, who's always nagging. What's it like? Constant dripping. Drip, 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 drip. How does that get? Drip, drip. You know, how, how, do, you, how do you end up feeling about that? You want to punch something? <laughs> <laughs> Just annoying. It's irritating. A great sign. You gets to be the only thing you can hear. It's just that drip, drip. You know, it just keeps going. And and a, and a wife who's always complaining just makes it impossible to live with. It just gets so on your nerves. He says, "He who would restrain her restrains the wind." How well does that work? It kind of goes around you. Yeah, it has. Restraining the wind is a bit challenging. And grasps oil with his right hand. Ever tried to pick up a handful of oil? It just goes through your hand. Yeah, it doesn't work very well. It's about like trying to nail jelly to the wall or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem to work very well. He's saying you just can't stop her. You know, she's just going to complain no matter what you do. He said that some other times in one way or the other. Uh, that's a common problem. That, uh, you know, many of you will be wives one day. Really think about how men react to constant complaining. You know, men don't like to be told what to do. And you think, well, if I don't tell them, they won't do it. So you just start telling them and telling them and telling them and telling them. And sure enough, they're not going to do it. You know, that's not a wise approach. You know, because almost any man instinctively rejects the constant, you know, criticism. So you may not get the guy to do everything you want, but constantly criticizing him is not going to help. Comments and questions about that? I think there's... Um a little bit of an implication here. When you choose a spouse, you're kind of stuck with them for life. So, you know, be, be kind of wise about these things when you're choosing who you're going to enter into a relationship with. If she's always complaining while you're dating, why would you think she'd get better when you get married? Or what about this one? Do you have friends who are dating who, who are always fighting each other they're always breaking up and getting back together and breaking up and getting back together. What do you usually think about those relationships? There's a reason problems can happen. <laughs> well, it sure isn't somebody you want to marry. If you're wanting to break up with them every other day when you're dating them, boy, what's it going to be like when you get married to them? That's, that's, there, there may be various kinds of issues there, but, but the couple who can't get along dating Sure don't need to get married. You know, if she's always complaining about him when she's dating him. You know, sometimes we think, well, I really want this person, but I want him to be like this. Well, that's kind of, you know, like a dream. It's not the reality. This person is not like that. <laughs> Now, what do we think? We think, well, I'll change them. Well, usually when people get married, they change. For the worst. 
I mean, think about it. When are you on your best behavior? When you're dating or after you're married? You try to catch them, you usually are more careful than once you've got them. So if you think they're bad when you're dating them, look for bad to go get worse after you get married. I mean, I'm saying that when, it, when you've got these things that you're just not happy with in the person, but you're really thinking, I'll be okay. You know, it's great to be married in a good relationship, but those things that annoy you so bad before you're even living with each other are not going to get better suddenly because you got married. Comments? Thoughts? Kevin? Okay. I think this goes back to uh, Ariel's comment earlier about when we're desperate, our standards lower, and we definitely can't lower our standards to accept somebody who isn't what is going to help us. Uh, it's going to be a contentious woman or whatever. We really need to keep our standards where Christ wants our standards. I know some single people that are pretty sad because they're single, but they're not nearly as sad as the married people I know who are unhappily married. <laughs> you know. There is one thing worse than staying single, and that's to get into a bad marriage. Other thoughts? 17 is a pretty popular proverb. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's the idea that we, as friends, can sharpen each other. We can make each other better. Maybe with constructive criticism, maybe with sharing our insights. As we interact, we can actually, you know, tend to um, um, really help each other. That's what often happens. One of the values of having good friendships is that we can tend to sharpen and help each other. And, you know, even in a study like this, would the study be as good if, you know, there was only one person doing all the talking? Don't we learn a lot by different people sharing their insights and one sharpens the other? You know, that's, that's, that's one of the blessings that God has given us in friendships. I think even more so than uh, studying, the way like a sword is sharpened is by physical contact with something. And so I think you could sharpen other people just by being around them. Because they'll see in you and you'll see in them qualities that you desire and qualities that are important to have and you want to have those. Good point. However, there are times when Christians are around each other where they don't really sharpen each other. Like, what do you talk about when you're around other Christians? Sports? <laughs> movies? Songs? Uh, computer games, Facebook, <coughs> YouTube. I don't know. Are those conversations usually really edifying to us? No, they may not be bad, but they're not things that really build us up very much. They don't sharpen us. You know, we need to make sure we're using our time together productively to really help build each other up. Just, you know, Two brothers sitting together being entertained at the same time is not going to really mutually build each other up. So we need to think about trying to use our time to sharpen each other. 
Jake. You know, just like when you sharpen anything, you know, there has to be friction. You know, I think, of, you know, a lot of ways, you know, like, you know, at least me and my brothers, you know, talk, you know, we're, you know, the, you know, a lot of other guys, I guess, talk. You know, it's not always, well, you know, it would be wonderful, you know, if, you know, you could maybe, you know, be able to do this just a little bit differently. You know, a lot of ways, you know, it's a lot more confrontational. It's really kind of hard to get through, I guess, and, you know, the other alternative way, I guess. But, you know, they, you know, just because, just like we talked earlier, you know, about criticism, you know, it's not always like, you know, lovey-dovey or none, but, you know, it's still good for us. Good point. Yes. Not necessarily an excuse to be harsh, right. but it is a motivation to be direct and frank and not hold back the things that will help. Really... You are generally closer to someone when you care about each other enough to actually say to each other the things that you need to do. It usually builds a relationship up if it's a good relationship. You know, after you talk through something like that, you know, sometimes we'll even let problems occur in a relationship. We, instead of talking it through, we just kind of build up this wall or this resentment or this grudge. And that doesn't sharpen anything. So really, that we do need to be willing to let that uh, even some more abrasive contact help us. Other thoughts, Kim? I think iron sharpens iron, but not just sitting there. If there's two pieces of iron, they need someone to pick it up and sharpen it. And in the same way, we need God to pick us up and sharpen us when we're around each other. Mm -hmm. Good point. You need to make a conscious effort, too, because with... As saturated as our culture is in entertainment and in vain stuff, we, especially between school and work and that sort of thing, we kind of become conditioned by the world to be talking about that stuff. And so we need a lot of self-monitoring and really consciously saying, okay, when I get around these people, I'm going to bring this up or start discussing this so that it'll be productive. Yeah, we need to purpose to have constructively edifying relationships. That. It's going to be something, I hate to hear the terminology here, so one man sharpens another. I think sometimes we feel like we can only be edified, or we only have edifying conversations if it's in a group, because then it's less confrontational, it's less, uh, it's, it's, it's more uh, natural in some ways. But I think it might be something you said about is having those individual conversations, individual one-on-one relationships that can really help you with. Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And I would say again, that there is so much value in seeking to frankly help each other in actually talking about the things that we really need to hear. You're going to have to receive that well. If a brother comes to you and wants to talk to you about something that they see in you that concerns them, you've got to listen to that properly. But there are so many times when that can be a huge blessing. And we've got to have enough courage to actually discuss the things that the person needs to hear. You know, that we, we just miss out on so much when we don't take advantage of the brotherly relationship that God gives us. I think one of the most effective ways for us to sharpen each other is to take everyday conversations and turn them back to the Lord. Because we are going to find ourselves talking about sports and movies and stuff like that. But the thing is, you can use those, and it's, it, I mean, if you, sometimes when you just come out and, you know, just immediately try to 
um, start to evangelize someone and immediately bring out the Bible and say, hey, let's, let's do this. You know, sometimes that works. With other people, it's like you have to kind of um, condition the situation. So it's, it's one of the most effective ways, and it shows how much Christ shines in your light and how much he's on your mind when you take everyday conversations and you turn them back to the Lord. Good point. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that, that reminds me of uh, the woman at the well in John 4. Because uh, Jesus didn't immediately come out and say, Hey, I'm the Messiah, you should believe in me. But he says, he turns the discussion about water into a spiritual discussion, and from that was able to evangelize. Kind of shows you what was on his mind, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, have you ever been around somebody that no matter what you're talking about, they shortly start talking about their favorite subject? What would be typical favorite subjects of somebody you know that's always talking about that? Instruments? Yeah. Musical instruments? Trains. Trains? <laughs> Science. 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 Sports. Sports. Politics. Politics. Celebrities. Celebrities. Guys. Guys. <laughs> Now we know the other side of the story. And I'm sure there's no one who ever uh, seems to always be talking about girls, is there? <laughs> no, that would never happen. Yeah. You know, and isn't that weird how that works? You know, because it, it, you, you almost, you stop and think about it. You do know some people that the subject always gets back to their favorite topic. And, and you stop thinking about it, you don't hardly even realize how that happens. It doesn't matter what, what you're talking about. It always goes there. Well, why? Because it's what they're thinking about. It's what they care about. So they're just automatically going to talk about it no matter what. Well, if we had more of, of, of the Lord dwelling richly in our heart, we'd be wanting to talk about him all the time. He'd just be on our mind all the time. We just kind of, everything would remind us of something about God. Other thoughts? Yeah. Sometimes when we're trying to make all our conversation God-centered, it's not natural because it's not really what we're thinking about constantly. It's more of like, how can I fit this in the conversation? <laughs> and so it just comes out unnatural and awkward. But if it is something that we're constantly dwelling on, let the word of the Lord dwell in richly, like, then it is going to be natural, and it's not going to be awkward. Yes. I think that's very true. You know, do you find this? Around certain people, it seems really natural to talk about spiritual things, and you do all the time. Around other people, it never seems like it works. You know, and, and it has to do more with just kind of what they are thinking about and what's natural for them to talk about. If we're really God-centered at heart, then it's not a forced thing. It's not just trying to kind of tack it on there. It just proceeds from us because that is what we care about and are interested in. That's a very good point. Yeah, I think that's so true. And so one of the things to, that you can think about then, or, or that I think about, is putting more in instead of forcing it to come out. And then yes. if that's what I'm thinking about, it will start to come out. And then I just try not to get in the way, basically. When your heart gets full of the Lord, it starts overflowing. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? Great, great conversation. Well, would somebody read 18 through uh, 22? He who takes 
good tree will yield fruit, and he who looks after his master will be honored. As water reflects the face, so a man's heart reflects the man. Every destruction are never satisfied, and neither are the eyes of man. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but man is tested by the taste and seed. The grinding pool and water, grinding pit like granite is a pestle, Okay, in verse 18, we have this common statement of Proverbs, and really of the Bible, that what you do will bring its reward. If you tend the fig tree, you'll eat its fruit. You care for your master, you'll be honored. What you reap, you'll sow. When you put effort into something, you receive back for the effort you put into it. That's always the way it is. So often people want rewards they don't want to work for. And that doesn't work as well. You want to, you want to make more money? Work harder. You want to get more respect? Live in a respectful way. Respectable way. Etc. So many of the things we want, we want to have them like magic instead of putting forth the effort. So he says, you know, you want to eat more fruit, tend your fig tree. You want to be honored, care for your master. You know, the results you want comes by what you put into getting it. Comments and thoughts about that? It's an extremely common Bible concept. Verse 19, you're welcome to say what you want to about. I don't know what it means. <laughs> Somebody want to offer a comment? talk about the things that are inside of us. Like Christ said, what's in a man's heart is what's going to come out of his mouth. And so basically what's inside is going to be what people see. Okay. That's certainly a good point. Maybe that is what it's talking about. That would be a good good idea. Right? A lot of time, um, I know with me, my friends can usually tell what's on my mind by the way I act. And I think if you really pay attention and really care about other people, you're going to know what's on their mind by just like what you see. That's a good point. Yeah. Good thought. Yes. Um, I think also how like water, you can always see your face in it whenever you look. Even if it's rippled, you can still see the images of the sky or the trees or your face. And how any actions that we do, everything we act on, will show what's in our heart and show what our true motives are eventually. Okay. Good thought. John. It first kind of struck me how uh, it says, you know, the heart of a man reflects the man. Normally we think, you know, the character of a man reflects what's in his heart. But I think it's cool that maybe through his actions we're able to tell what his real motive is and if it's a pure motive, then we see his heart, and that way we can see him. Okay. Very good thoughts. Perhaps you see why I'm not sure what it means. There's a lot of different ways of looking at this. Uh, but good to think about those things. Look at verse 20. When he talks about how Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, I think he's talking about like the grave. Death. You know, and the idea is... Does, does, does the grave ever get to the point where it says, nope, we're full, no more people can die now? <laughs> no. Death is always ready for another victim. You know, it never gets satiated. 
And in the same way, you can never satisfy the eyes of a man. You know, man has a nature where he always wants a little more. Isn't that true? In every area. Have, do you ever get to the point where you get enough of your favorite hobby or recreation? What do you always want? A little more, a little better, a little more exciting. You know, uh, it, it just it just never seems like the, there's enough. Um, you know, you you get to be the best player in your in your high school, then you want to play in college. Then you get to the top of that, you want to go pro, and just so forth and so on. You you know, in any area. It seems like you're never filled up. You know, you you like to, I like to snow ski, so you ski and you kind of dominate one place where you don't want to go to a bigger place. <laughs> you know, you want, you want a higher jump, you know, whatever. It's just like, you know, you're always wanting more. And money is like that. You know, it, it, really everything in life, the eyes are never satisfied. You know, the more you feed it, the more it wants. And that's because these kinds of earthly things don't fill us up. And so the eyes can never be satisfied because you're always going to feel that emptiness that only God can fill, as we said earlier. Comments and thoughts about that? Wouldn't it be awesome if the thing we were never satisfied by was the Word of God? Yes. Yes. If that was our main craving and what we longed to fill ourselves with because it was filling us. Yes. Secondly, can you define, I know that Sheol's like the, just means the grave, like, be like the Greek Hades, right? So what, what does a bad mean? I'm like destruction. Okay. Other thoughts? In 21, you use the crucible to refine the silver, the furnace to refine the gold. And, and the way you test the man is by the praise accorded to him. Um, I'm going to take this a particular way. I'm not sure about this. But is he perhaps saying that the way you can really see what a man's character is like is by how he responds when he's praised. You know, um, do you give the credit to the Lord? And honor him, or do you get a big head? That's kind of one of the tests that shows you the real nature of someone. Thoughts and comments? Okay. I think another way to view it is the way that the praises that you, uh, someone is given. If you're trying, you're meeting someone new, you want to know if there's someone you want to be hanging around. If someone comes up to them and starts flattering them. But it's just like the ones we've been talking about earlier, where it's it's empty. You know, you can tell that's not that's not who they are, and they're just trying to get on their good side. And you know that person's not very um someone you want to be hanging around too often. But if something that you see is legit and something that um would be good for you to be around, and they're praising them on their faith or on something good that they did to help someone else, just the way other people act around someone is a good way to test if there's someone to be around. Okay. Good thought. Anything else? 
Okay, and in 22, <laughs> this is funny. You can take a fool and, and pound him, and you cannot get his foolishness away from him. You know, you'd kind of pound the grain to get the husk away from the kernel. But you, the fool is, the folly is so ingrained in the fool, you can beat him to death and his, his folly is still going to stick with him. You know, it's just, uh, you know, it just becomes a part of who he is. Do you know some people like that? Even, you think about some people who really suffer a lot for their sins, and what do they do? Yeah, you know, you take the guy who's inappropriately behaved himself with women and, you know, got a child on the way or whatever and continues to go from woman to woman to woman. Like, well, and then I, I, there's a man in Brazil uh, who was a Christian. He's gone unfaithful to the Lord, but he had like five different kids with five different women. You know, and it's like, and he continued even after he became a Christian to do those kind of things. Uh, some people just, you know, there's nothing you can do to them to get the foolishness away from them. Are you like that? Are you like the kind of person, no matter what consequences God brings on you, that foolishness is just, you know, a part of who you are? Comments and questions? I think it just looking at this first kind of helps with our mindset in dealing with fools because sometimes you you have you know someone who is foolish and you just they they frustrate you so much you just want to explode and yell at them and tell them everything they're doing wrong and if you think about it you know it uses the word grind him with mortar you could you could yell at them all you want and they will still not get it, it their folly will still stay with them so it's best to just step back and pray for them instead yeah, do you ever have somebody that you're like, what can I do to make them do the right thing? Well, what's the answer? Nothing. 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 Yeah, shake the dust off your feet. Don't cast the pearls before swine. You know, there's some people that they don't want to do the right thing. You know, I mean, as I've talked to guys sometimes about purity, you know, one of the points I've sometimes made, well, bottom line, if you want to do the wrong thing, you're going to do the wrong thing. And there's not anything that's going to stop you. You know, I've had guys that have said, well, you know, I just don't know what happened. You know, I read the Bible today. I prayed today. You know, I did this, and I still fell. Well, you know, it's not like there's some magic formula that so many prayers and so many Bible verses will keep you from doing what you want to do and choose to do. If you choose to do wrong, you'll do wrong. And uh, some people, they're bound to determine to be fools. Nothing will stop them. Not even the Lord, because he's given us a free will. And so while he doesn't want us to do wrong, he lets us, if that's what we're bound and determined to do. Right? There's another proverb that talks about fools trying to buy wisdom. Sometimes the price that we pay for wisdom is doing something stupid and experiencing the consequences. Um, but, you know, some fools should be the wisest of all with as many poor decisions as they've made, mm -hmm. but they still don't have anything to show for it. Yes. 
It's kind of sad, isn't it? But that's very true. Other comments? I think sometimes um, the, one of the best things you can do for somebody like that is to really reflect Christ in your life. Because if they see you like that, they'll want what you have. Because they'll understand that you have something different and you really don't have to put up with a lot of what they, what they have to put up with. Yeah, you think about First uh, Peter 3, where a wife was married to a non-Christian husband. He said, they'll be one without a word by seeing your good behavior. You know, sometimes that's more effective than what you say. Um, and particularly in some relationships. I would think, for example, um, what can you do to make your parents do better? Some of you have parents that you'd really like to see do better, but parents don't usually relate well and react well when their, parent, when their kids ball them out and try to give them a lecture, nor would that be the appropriate attitude for a child to have. And sometimes the best thing we can do is just do the right thing. Live properly. And they'll see that. And whether or not they'll change, that's ultimately up to them. And sometimes it takes a long time. Other questions or comments? Yeah, Hannah. This is still something I'm trying to think about. The best way to say it, I don't know if it will come out right. But um, this kind of concept is something that I've learned since leaving and going away to college is um, I can apply to other people or, or myself and just that sometimes I worry too much about the situation and the people that I'm with and, and what is going to be the best idea for me or others to do the right thing and something that I've really just learned since being away it doesn't matter where you are who you're with the best situation that you possibly could be in if you want to do bad you'll do it no matter where you are and it really matters about not just where you are and who you're with but what you truly want and if you want bad, you'll find it no matter where you go. That's exactly right. And so, what do we really want? What are we choosing? And it um, might be a helpful lesson for parents. You can't make your child do what's right. You know, ultimately, they have their own decision to make. Other thoughts? John. I think a lot of times it gets kind of, you don't really see it the way it should be. You know, we keep trying to think about what I can do, how I have to fix this person. You know, he's doing so much wrong and I'm not sure how I'm supposed to fix him. But I think something that I have to keep reminding myself of is, you know, the best thing that I can do is pray for them. And I, I think, you know, a lot of times we underestimate that. But I think that, you know, with the Lord's help, that's the way they're going to be able to hear. Good point. We can become the fool in verse 22 by trying to change him sometimes. Sometimes we need to think of, we, we tend to read verses like this and apply, well, this person that I've tried to work with or this person that I've been friends with is a fool. Well, maybe we're a fool too. We need to think about how, how reasonable we're being. Well, when someone came and said something similar to us just a couple months ago and we didn't react properly, how, why then are we trying to blame them for acting the same way? We tend to apply that to other people and forget that sometimes the biggest culprit is ourselves. Yeah, good point. Good thoughts. 
Alright, 23 to 27. Know well the condition of your flocks, and pay attention to your herds. For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the grass disappears, the new growth is seen, and the herbs of the mountain are gathered in. The lambs will be your clothing. And the goats will bring the price of a field, and there will be goats milk enough for your food, for the food of your household, and sustenance for your maidens. So what's he talking about here? Sheep? Stewardship of finances. What's he talking about literally? Goats and sheep. And what about it? Taking care of them? Yes. And what's the lesson? If you're taking good care of your flocks and herds, then they're going to provide for you when you need it. Exactly. That does make sense. I realize we're not too much in an agricultural economy, but you can put yourself in this uh, situation and you realize that what the work you do taking care of your animals will to a great extent determine how much they'll take care of you, like how good the wool will be for your clothing and how much goat's milk there will be for your, you know, and to sustain you and all that. The idea is that if you work hard, there's a payoff. You know, in farming, that's exactly the way that is, right? I think in life, there's, there's a payoff and God usually rewards us, but there's also an even bigger payoff. Because if you think about what Christ said about the judgment, how, um, you know, as much as you did it to the least of, of my children, you did so to me, and I'll give you a reward in heaven for that. Yeah. You know, so hard work pays off in a lot of different ways. Proverbs talks a lot about, you know, dreaming about, you know, wanting to get rich quick with no work and things like that. And that does not work well, doesn't function well. The best way for us to prosper is to put forth the effort that it takes over a period of time to care for the flocks and herds and get a good increase from that. You know, that doesn't seem as glamorous or exciting. You know, it'd be more fun if there were a pill to swallow and you got everything you wanted, but those pills are expensive and they don't work very well. You know, so it works a lot better just to do the hard work it takes to get somewhere. But there's lots of applications to that. What kind of applications can you think about? Schoolwork. I was thinking about that one. What would you say about schoolwork? Not procrastinating. <laughs> yes! So, you know, you've been studying all semester, <clears throat> and you come down to the last night before the final, and you decide to start reading the book and seeing uh, what you could learn. And you stay up all night trying to cram this information in from a whole semester of study, and what happens on the test? It doesn't work very well. Fall asleep? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, those quick fix kinds of things don't work quite as well as putting in the effort in a disciplined, determined way over a period of time. And it's also a lot less stressful if you'll do it that way. Isn't that true? But 
But who wants to have to work hard every day? You know, who wants to do their homework every day? Who wants to study every day? You know, so we put it off, we put it off, we put it off, we put it off, and then we face this huge mountain with no time. And then we wonder why we couldn't get our grades. I really crammed. Yeah, but you didn't really work. What are some other applications you can see? I think verse um, 25, it says, when the grass disappears, the new growth is seen. That's looking on the positive. There, you can look, the glass is half full. We can look, the glass is half empty. Here, you can look, well, all this is gone. Or you can see, well, something new is about to start. And I think that can be applied in so many different ways in our life. And when we are struggling through something, we can think, oh, well, this is hard, and this is, um, this is hurting me, and I'm not going to get anywhere with this. Or you can think, well, when this is over, I'll be so much better, and there will be a chance for me to do so much more. Good point. Good thought. And think about the investment spiritually. If you want to grow spiritually and be a strong Christian, what does it take? Hard work, discipline. You know, you've got to keep after it. You've got to persevere and invest. It's always the way it is. You don't become a strong Christian by doing nothing. You become a strong Christian by really, you know, committing yourself and following through. And, and it's hard for us, this business of working hard. You know, of just really doing what we need to do <coughs> over a period of time. And sometimes we have short attention span. And so if we can't get something in the next 30 minutes, forget it. You know, but, but you know, worthwhile things take time. Can you imagine uh, becoming a medical doctor yeah, by studying for a couple weeks? You know, yeah, you can, can't you? You don't want to go to those doctors, though, do you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, we really, I mean, when we're not willing to put forth effort over a long period of time to grow and be what we ought to be as a Christian, don't be surprised that the results are never worthwhile. That we never really get anywhere. We, we never stuck with it long enough to get anywhere. We had maybe a resolve now and then, a dream now and then, but when it came to actually implementing it day in, day out, we went out. Eric. I was reading something just today about um, tests, it, like the idea of tests in life, about how like sometimes you think, oh, like when a big test comes in my life, I'll do well, like a big decision or something. But he made the point that like the little ones, even like the first one of the day when your alarm clock goes off, like how are you going to do with that? Like, and those little things add up and that's what makes you into what you need to be for the big things. Exactly. Most of life is not dramatic moments and huge decisions. Most of life are relatively minor decisions and, and kind of the day-to-day -day sorts of things. That's the way farming is. When you're taking care of those herds and flocks and all of that, it's not just these dramatic, life-changing experiences every minute. It's just feeding them again and taking care of them again building the fence back again, and you know, whatever you have to do, and it's just kind of day in, day out. 
so often we only want to do the things that we just get a real thrill out of and we feel like they're exciting and we can immediately see the result. But so much of Christian maturing is over a long period of time and the results are not immediately obvious. So there's not a great degree of reward right then. That this, there's just so much good in this farming concept of, you know, I just have to keep working hard and it will pay off in time. That, that ability to think long-term, put in long-term investment. You know, you think about an Olympic athlete. How long a period of time do they train for? Yeah, their whole life, yeah. I mean, usually years and years and years. Now tell me that any given moment of that training was the key. You know, this particular 30-minute section of their training will make or break them. No, it won't. And they know that. So what if you skip that 30-minute session and this 30-minute session, the other 30 minutes? You know, pretty soon, you're not going to make the Olympics. But you lost it by just little increments. You know, that's where, I mean, Olympic athletes are impressive. In part because they've had that commitment and worked hard in a disciplined way for so long a period of time before they ever got to the point of receiving the reward. It's hard to do that. It's hard, and they didn't even know for sure they were going to get the reward. And still, they kept training, kept training, kept training, kept making the decision to do the hard thing that would make them better. And eventually, they reaped the reward. You know, it's so much like that. You want to learn the Bible better. Well, what does it take? Well, study. Well, tell me that this 15 minutes of study is suddenly going to make your Bible knowledge twice as good. No. You're not even going to hardly tell the difference. Well, that 15 minutes of study. Well, the other. And yet, it's those small choices. You know, day after day. In, in things that don't even seem like they'll have much impact. It's the accumulation of those small choices that makes so much difference in the outcome. I think those are just great lessons. Because that constancy and that endurance is such a key. Thoughts, Kevin? And verse on 23 says, know well the condition of your flocks. And not only do we need to know and do the things that are needed for them constantly, be getting them through and all, but we need to know when there's a need. We need to know when that fence is broken down. We need to know when their leg is broken. And we need to look around at our brethren for application and see when they're struggling in a certain aspect. We need to know that so we can help them in that. We need to know when we're struggling in a certain aspect, and we need to know that so that we can do those things to bring the problem. A great point. When we're trying to help the flock of God, you know, it takes attention and effort. You've got to be aware of the needs of the flock. A good point. Anything else? Matt? Um... Uh, verse 24, for riches are not forever, nor does the crown endure to all generations. Uh, then yet again, verse 27 talks about the sustenance of your maidens, and really the basic needs. And verse 24 leads me to believe that, you know, while the times are good, we want to, like, 
make money off it, we want to succeed, improve ourselves. But really, when it comes down to it, we just need to take care of ourselves, like just on the base level. And I feel like just knowing the stationary flocks and not shooting for the moon, as it were, and we just need to keep in mind we we just need to live. You know, we need we don't need to become overly ambitious. Excellent point. Agree with that. Yeah. Sometimes we're dreaming about the quantum leap, but what it takes is day after day. May not be so exciting. May not get us to some you know peak of success, but things will go well. Logan. I forget this exact statistic. It's been a while since I've heard it, but I think it's well over fifty percent of lottery winners go bankrupt within like five to ten years, and so which puts them in an even worse situation than when they got the money before they got the money. So I think you know you can see some of the wisdom in God in that that getting everything at once isn't good for us. You're right. You're right. There's a lot of blessing in long-term effort and long-term reward. But it's hard to do it. It's hard to be patient, especially when we're sort of the microwave society. Kitty. Another good thing um, is it's hard work, but parenting uh, really shows in the future what, what you were as a parent. Absolutely. No one conversation, no one hug, no one spanking, you know, no one anything is the one thing that makes or breaks the kid. It's the accumulation day after day and it's tiring and you don't see results at first and you just keep doing it and you still don't see results. It just really tests our persistence and our ability to pursue something that God says is right over the long term. Great, great application. Other comments? All right, well, I think we'll stop here. We're at a chapter break, and uh, we, I 